All right, yesterday in the book of Acts, what did baptism do? Oh, it brought you into the church. Entryway into the church. So the people heard Peter's preaching, they believed, and then they were baptized, and then were counted among the disciples. So it was the rite of entry into the church in the book of Acts. And um, we talked about how there's several kind of big questions that we ask about baptism, that the kind of... Uh, different Christians have provided different answers to. And the one that we were focusing on yesterday was about the mode of baptism. How should baptism be administered? And um, there are really three answers that are offered to that. And uh, first of all, we have to acknowledge that baptism should be in the Trinitarian name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus tells us to do, right? Uh, Go into all the nations and make disciples Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism should always be in the Trinitarian name. It should always be in what? In water. All right? You should not baptize in Mountain Dew or spaghetti sauce. All right? Uh, It should be in water. But beyond, like, those really basic common sense things, Christians have provided three answers as to how should baptism be administered, mode of baptism. What are they? Immersion. Immersion. Sprinkling and pouring. And so the only one we got through yesterday was immersion. Immersion is the idea that in baptism, the person uh, is dunked all the way submerged under the water. That would be immersion. And uh, we talked about like um, people who, who really prefer immersion. Uh, what is kind of the imagery that they're trying to capture in baptism? Hmm? Yeah, okay. You've, you've died in Christ and then you're... You're brought up out of the water, so you're what? Resurrected. Yeah, raised to new life, all right? The old me died with Christ, the new me now lives, right? So you're trying to get at that imagery uh, with baptisms by immersion. Is that biblical imagery? Yeah, is it good? It is. Um, we talked yesterday, you know, I'm, the denomination that I'm a part of in, in, in my personal conviction as well is um, the... I'm kind of of the opinion, mode of baptism is, there's a word that we sometimes use in theology, adiaphora. Uh, This means a matter of indifference. That's what I kind of think about mode of baptism. I think sprinkling, pouring, and immersion are all fine, and I think all of them have biblical symmetry. uh, symbolism that they're trying to to capture. I think that all of them can make a pretty strong case off of off of the biblical text. So I would say that mode is really a matter of adiaphora. What we're dealing with here is not which one is biblical versus which ones are unbiblical so much as which one is maybe most preferable out of them. All right, I'm going to make the case that pouring is most preferable out of the three, but kind of. It's kind of beside the point. If you see a baptism by immersion, if you're baptized by immersion, anything along those lines, you should bring back to your mind that symbolism. Dead uh, to your old self, raised to new life in Christ. We did talk about how people in the immersionist camp have a tendency to try to say immersion is really the only way to do it. All right? And... um, Sometimes they'll try to argue that the word, this is where we left off yesterday, sometimes they'll try to argue that the word baptizo, the Greek word for baptism, necessarily means to immerse. And I gave a couple of examples yesterday of places where baptizo is used in the New Testament. This is the same word that's translated baptism. In these texts, it's being translated washing, which 
kind of annoys me. I, I think it would be really helpful if they translated it consistently. But a couple places where the word baptizo is used, where it's almost certainly not referring to an immersion. All right, the Pharisees, whenever they get ready to eat, they wash, or what word is that really? Baptizo. So you could say it, they baptize their dining couches, right? So the the Pharisees ceremonially cleanse all their vessels and everything before they eat. Remember in the ancient world, you kind of lay on your stomach whenever you eat on these dining couches. And so one of the things that they do before they, uh, you know, uh, settle down to eat dinner is they baptize their uh, their dining couch. Does that probably mean that they fully submerge it underwater so that then they can lay on it for half an hour? Probably not, right? So this is a case where the word baptizo is used and it almost certainly doesn't refer to an immersion. Or Hebrews 9, 9 and 10, where it talks about the ceremonial washings in the Old Testament law and where very many of those immersions. No, most of them were what? Yeah, mostly sprinkled. There, is, there are some that are pouring, but a lot of times the ceremonial cleansings, you use something called a hyssop branch, which is kind of spongy on the end, and you dip it in the water, and then you kind of flick it at the person. So the water flicks on them. It, it's a sprinkling. So, but that sprinkling in the Old Testament ceremonial cleansings uh, is referred to as, it's translated here as a washing. It's really the word baptism. All right. So these are places where um, we kind of see the word baptism in and of itself doesn't mean to immerse. It can, it can have a wider range of meanings. We also looked yesterday at Jesus' baptism. Does the text really come out and say Jesus was submerged under the water? No. Especially if you pair that with Acts chapter 8. We're going down into the water and coming up out of the water. That's something that both the baptized and the baptizer do. So uh, we don't really get like this clear cut picture of exactly how Jesus's baptism was done or or really any of the others. Um, So we kind of have to make our best inferences off of this. So um, let's look at uh, baptism by sprinkling next. Uh, Baptism by sprinkling finds a lot of really strong support in that Hebrews 9 text that we just looked at. Because Hebrews 9 talked about the various washings of Old Testament law, which were, some of them were pouring. I can think of one that was immersion. But most of them, the vast majority of them, are sprinklings. So, um, if you're trying to argue for baptism by sprinkling, that Hebrews 9 text is your friend. You can point at it and say, look, the sprinklings of the Old Testament law, they're called baptisms. So, Old Testament baptisms were done by sprinkling. New Testament baptisms can be done by sprinkling. Um, that, those sprinklings in the Old Testament law were all about cleanliness. They were all about purification. And we get the idea in the New Testament that once we're saved, we're cleansed from all unrighteousness. So if you baptize somebody by sprinkling, or if you're baptized by sprinkling, or see a baptism by sprinkling, that's kind of the imagery, the symbolism, that you should bring to mind. This person is being cleansed of their unrighteousness. They're being cleansed of their sin uh, by, by Christ. Ezekiel 36.25 is another text that um, could support baptism by sprinkling. Um, there's a promise in Ezekiel 36.25 that whenever the Holy Spirit comes, he will do this. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Notice the verb there? 
sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. So again, if, if you are ever in a situation where a baptism by sprinkling is happening, that's the imagery that it should bring to your mind. Uh, good biblical imagery. The, the believers are cleansed from our unrighteousness, cleansed by our sin, um, just like those in Old Testament days, these sprinklings made them ceremonially clean. Um, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2 also mentions um, that we have been saved in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So, again, the idea of sprinkling tied to purification, to cleansing. So, uh, we've been sprinkled by Jesus' blood. It's made us clean. So, these are texts that people who are really big fans of baptism by sprinkling will point to. Um, again, baptism by sprinkling, does it capture really good biblical imagery? It does. Does it capture true biblical imagery? It does. Important, important points. So, again, this is one of the reasons why I think that we really don't have to be dogmatic about one is right and the others are wrong. Um, all of them have some sort of a basis they can reach back to. Um, we've already gone over that. If we baptize by immersion, we should think of the biblical idea that we were crucified with Christ. Our sin was condemned in him. We're now raised to new life as new people. By sprinkling, we should think about how God has purified us from sin and made us clean. We've already gone over that, though. So now let's get to the third position, which is pouring. Um, even though I think the others are, are good, they're permissible, they're valid modes of baptism, this is the one, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to choose one of the three, right? At the end of the day, um, you know, a church has to choose one of the three, a denomination kind of has to choose one of the three, you as an individual would have to choose one of the three. And so out of the three, this would be the one I prefer, is baptism by pouring. Um, the reason why is way back in Matthew chapter 3, when John the Baptist was baptizing a bunch of people in the Jordan, he made a really interesting statement. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, who's that a reference to? Jesus. The one who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John says, I'm baptizing you with water. Jesus will also baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So here's a question. Can you think of a time in the New Testament when Jesus did baptize, to use John's word, Jesus baptized his church with Holy Spirit and fire? You guys who had me for New Testament should be able to think of it. What is it? Pentecost. Oh, I gave you the answer. I thought I had that on like a thing where I would hit it and then the answer would show up. But it was actually right there for you. It's Pentecost. Good job. Um, Acts chapter 2. Remember, after Jesus ascends into heaven, his initial disciples go back to Jerusalem and they wait for him to fulfill the promise by sending the Holy Spirit. This is what we read in Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, all the disciples were together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to, 
appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So let's connect that with what John the Baptist said a second ago. John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water. Jesus will baptize you with what? Holy Spirit and with fire. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is given to the church. And what does the Holy Spirit look like in this text? Tongues of fire. So there's the Holy Spirit and fire. All right. The Holy Spirit is given to the church. Jesus is baptizing his church in the Holy Spirit, just like John the Baptist said he would. And what verb does Peter use to explain it? Has the church been immersed in the Spirit or sprinkled in the Spirit? What has it been? It's been poured. So I would reason from this, when Jesus baptizes his church with the Spirit, it's a baptism via pouring. All right? That's the word that Acts 2 uses. In the book of Acts later, as you keep working through Acts, water baptism is really tightly connected with the baptism of the Spirit. Water baptism and the giving of the Spirit continue to be really tightly connected in the book of Acts, just like it was with John the Baptist. As Jesus baptized at Pentecost... I would reason we should baptize in the church as well. Uh, here are some examples of, uh, you know, a really tight connection between the spirit and baptism. In Acts chapter 10, Peter goes to a Gentile and shares the gospel. The Gentile's name is Cornelius. And this is what happens. While Peter was still saying these things, preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they, and, and notice the word there again, whenever the Spirit is given to them, how is he given? What verb is it? Poured. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So they received this baptism of the Spirit, this pouring out of the Spirit, and Peter immediately says they should also have water baptism. You see how the spirit, the baptism of the spirit and the baptism of water are kind of connected in this text, right? They go together. Um, another one is in Acts 19. This is one that we looked at yesterday where those people in Ephesus had been baptized in John's baptism, but then they hadn't learned about the spirit yet. And, and then Paul rebaptizes them. Um, Paul passed through the inland country. He came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of of the Lord Jesus. And I cut it off too early. Right after that, they receive the Spirit. The Spirit is poured out on them. And once again, uh, they speak in tongues. 
uh, like Cornelius and like the disciples did. Um, so this is kind of why I would favor baptism by pouring. All right. When Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire, he does it through a pouring out. That's the language that the scriptures chooses to use. And there's a connection in the book of Acts between the baptism of the spirit and water baptism. And I would make the argument that we should administer water baptism the same way Jesus administered Holy Spirit baptism. The, the, this, um, the same you know, pouring out that Jesus did with the spirit, same pouring out should be done with the water. And that whenever we baptize by pouring, um, we should remember how Jesus has poured out the spirit upon us. And this gives us new life, like Immersion says. John chapter 3 that we looked at last semester, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the birth that is from above, all right? So it gives us new life, like Immersion says. Uh, Titus chapter 3 talks about how the Holy Spirit has given us a washing of new life. So he gives us purification, just like, which one really emphasized purification? Which of the modes? Sprinkling. So, so just like immersion wants to get this new life imagery, if we, if we do it by pouring, we remember the Holy Spirit's been poured out. The Holy Spirit's the one that gives us the birth from above. So, so we're getting that imagery. We're getting the cleansing imagery because the Spirit is the one who gives us uh, that cleansing from sin and, and all the rest of the blessings of God beside. So once again, though, even though that's my preferred method, I told you guys yesterday, was I baptized by pouring? I was baptized by immersion, and I'm perfectly happy with that, right? I, um, I think that pouring, the more that I've, I've kind of matured and, and have studied this, I think that pouring is probably the one that I would prefer the most. But I think all three modes should be considered valid, all right, even if we come to prefer one to the other. And I, I also would say I don't think that there is like an absolutely definitive biblical command to baptize with one method as opposed to the others, right? None of the texts that we've looked at have said, by the way, do baptism specifically this way, have they? All of this has been, we're looking at the different imagery associated with it, and we're trying to use our reasoning, we're trying to use careful readings of the scripture to arrive at the best inference. It's not really a guess, right? It's, it's, it's us being educated and trying to draw conclusions, but the text doesn't just come out and say, do this or don't do this right? It's not telling us that definitively. So I think that we have to acknowledge that all of these have a biblical basis. And even if we prefer one to the other, that's not really an excuse to say, oh, those others are just unbiblical uh, and, and look down on them. Um, all of them, I think, are, are valid. So before we go any further, you guys have questions on that? Oh, yeah, I think um, what I meant was, like, you're not going to get baptized three times, though, right? Oh, yeah. So, um, like, I know the church that I attend, Westminster, um, kind of the default setting is pouring. So, like, if you, if you come and you're like, we wanna, I want to be baptized, um, it's just going to be kind of assumed that you're going to do it via pouring. Um, I had a friend in high school that attended that church before I did, and um, at that point in her life, she was very, very committed to baptism by immersion. And so she goes and meets with the pastor and uh, explains her, her case. And, um, you know, they discussed it a little bit. He gave a little bit of pushback here and there. But at the end of the day, uh, that's what she felt like was biblical. That's what her conscience was really calling her to. So he baptized her by immersion. 
right? So I think that there is a, um, I think that there is a place for a little bit of leniency there. Um, but most churches and denominations will feel like, you know, we probably need to have kind of a default setting, um, even if we are going to give some of that leniency. And then us as individuals, we kind of need to have that too. Now, I will say, um, again, um, if you're like in a, in a Baptist church or Church of Christ church, what's the only one they're going to see as a valid baptism? Immersion. Immersion. All right. Um, and again, you know, that is, that's their choice. I don't, I don't agree with that, but that is, um, you know, there are really smart people, really godly people that are part of those churches and have that conviction. Um, I've kind of shown you why I'm, I'm not super convinced by that, but that is, that is like Southern Baptist Convention, I think is the largest denomination in the United States. It has lots of good people in it, lots of very smart people in it. That's, that's the conviction that they come to. So, uh, you know, if you're, in a, if, if you're in certain denominations, there may not be that freedom to have a conversation and say, well, I actually want to do it via sprinkling or something like that, right? Um, but uh, I think that where I stand, at least, I would be fine giving people a little bit of an option. I, I, I don't think that one of these has to be so preferred that we just kind of throw the other two out. Um, so any other questions what I don't like is how the orthodox baptize (laughs) the orthodox do um, well the orthodox that's not really a monolithic group um that, you know, there's a lot of different types of Orthodox. There's Eastern Orthodox, and then there's Oriental Orthodox. And even within Eastern Orthodoxy, there's Russian, Ukrainian, all of it. It's, it's a lot of Eastern European stuff. But um, some of them are very normal and will baptize in very normal ways. Some of them are not. And uh, you guys have probably seen the video. Actually, uh, just... Huh? Let me let me just just show you. This is this is not this is not a good thing. Um, so uh, this is a this is a this is child abuse. This is infant baptism. Got we haven't gotten to infant baptism quite yet, but this is infant baptism gone wrong. Um, this is a, this is not how my boys were baptized. Uh, and if I am one day a pastor and you come to my church and want your babies to be baptized, I will not do it this way, no matter how much you ask me to, um, because I am, I am. (laughs) This makes me sad to watch. All right, here we go. Here we go. All right, so full disclosure, this is horrible. You're allowed to laugh, okay? So um, you are a terrible person if you, if you laugh at this, but you know what? This is a judgment-free zone right now. So... <laughs> um, so notice, notice that the dipping, it was head, feet, head, feet, head, feet. So... A total of six dippings, um, but head feet counts as one. They, they're doing it. Um, they're doing it three times. Head feet one. Head feet two. Head feet three. Why do you think they're doing it three times? Father, Son, Father, Son, Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. All right. 
Um, but uh, that kid is not happy. Yeah, I hate that. So, yeah, yeah, shaking babies is a bad thing. So, um, you know, I will say um, for this whole uh, mode of baptism thing, um, that one is wrong. The others, I don't, I'm not going to say that one's necessarily wrong. That's wrong. Don't do that. Um, I will also, I was telling Chloe this at the end of class yesterday. Um, Whenever I was in college, I had a friend that was looking into um, infant baptism and believers only baptism in in that debate, which we'll get to here in just a little bit. But um, this guy was... um, reading a, a old Puritan, the Puritans, if you, if you know that term, they're going to hold to infant baptism. And this, um, this Puritan guy is talking about how um, there are people who like are baby murderers and they hate their kids and everything. And, and my friend assumes he's talking about people who don't hold to infant baptism, who don't baptize their, their babies. And, and this guy is using very strong language. You know, they're baby murderers. They hate their kids. And he's like, that seems extreme, like really extreme. Well, he reads a little bit longer, and he, he was wrong. This guy was actually talking about people who baptize their infants by immersion in Massachusetts in February. <laughs> so he's calling them baby murderers, and you hate your children. And my friend's like, okay, that actually makes more sense. You know, like, that would be very bad for your, for your kids. So, um, so mode of baptism, don't do what we just saw. Don't baptize your infants by full immersion in icy water. So uh, those are wrong. Uh, these other ones, adiaphora. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, so... Um, again, one of the things that um, we, we've already mentioned, but kind of the most important uh, detail in this whole discussion about mode of baptism is that baptism should be done in the Trinitarian name. It should be done according to Jesus, baptize them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um, when we're baptized, interestingly, we're not only supposed to be baptized into the name of Jesus, but into the name of all three persons of the Godhead. Um, later in the book of Acts, sometimes it will say they were baptized into Jesus's name, um, but it never like gives a full story where Paul stands up and you know does whatever he does to them and says, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It uses baptized into Jesus's name kind of as a summary of this, but the formula that's actually given to us by Jesus is that we are to be baptized into, um, and notice that it is the singular name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Getting at the idea that Father, Son, and Spirit are three persons, but they share one name because they are, in essence, one God. Um, So, all that to say, if a baptism has been done in water, not in chocolate milk or anything else, but baptism has been done in water, in the Trinitarian name, in one of the three biblical modes, and through the authority of the local church, because remember, baptism is all about coming into membership in the local church, then that baptism ought to be treated as valid. All right. Um, Next question, though, 
We've talked about mode of baptism. The next question would be, who should get baptized? And um, what we're really dealing with is two camps here. And the two camps down at the bottom of the screen are credo-baptist and paedo-baptist. Credo is the word, I believe. So credo-baptists are uh, people who hold to believers-only baptisms. Uh, if you are credo-baptist, then you think the only people who should receive baptism in any mode are people who have made a credible profession of faith in the Lord Jesus, who have confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in their heart that Christ raised him, or that God raised him from the dead. All right. So credo-baptist is believers-only baptist. Pedo-baptist, all right, are people who believe in infant baptism as well. Okay, so if you're a pedo-baptist, uh, kind of two different types of people can be baptized. The first group would be, okay, we've got a person who, uh, you know, has never been a believer. They've never been baptized and they come to faith in Jesus. They want to join the local church. That person, of course, should be baptized. But on top of that as well, pedo-baptists also teach infant baptism, that the children of believers should be baptized as well even in early infancy. So um, I, would, I would reckon that the majority of you are way more familiar with credo-baptist position than paedo-baptist. Is that, is that fair? Usually whenever we get into this, infant baptism is something that really interests people, but it seems very weird to them because they don't really have too much of a familiarity with it. Um, and if you have a familiarity, it's probably probably Roman Catholic is probably the first thing that you think about. Oh, that's something that Catholic people do. It's not just something that Catholic people do. Um, it's something that the majority of Christian denominations do. Um, but in, in our area, um, being in the Bible Belt in the uh, Christian southeast of the United States, um, this is kind of a minority position, but that's, that's a rarity. Like, like most places in the world, Pado-Baptist would kind of be a majority position. So, um, but it, it's, it's something that's a little bit hard to get used to. I remember whenever I first started looking at it, thinking it was very, very odd uh, coming from a, from a very heavily Baptist background. So um, we're going to start with Credo Baptist. We're going to start with what's familiar. And then probably on Friday, we'll have to save anything for Pado Baptist until Friday. So let's start with what's familiar first. Um, first of all, Credo Baptists like their kids. All right. Hopefully. Um, you know, if they're if they're if they're believing Christian, you know, they should they should love their kids. It's not that they're like anti-child. That's not the reason that they're withholding baptism from their kids. Um, they're going to love their kids. They're going to raise their kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They're going to bring them to church. All of those things that Christian parents should do. But credo Baptists believe baptism should only be given to those who make a credible profession of faith to receive baptism. A kid needs to grow up, needs to make the faith that they've heard about his or her own personal faith, and then they'll enter into the church community officially as a member through the entry rite of baptism. That would be the credo-baptist understanding. So how do they get to that position? Um, I'm going to list off a few arguments that a credo-baptist would, would make in support of that view. Um, Number one is that in the New Testament, the only explicit baptisms... What does explicit mean there? It doesn't mean bad words. What does it mean? 
yeah, obvious, right? Like, um, whenever you get a story of a person being baptized in the New Testament, uh, those baptisms are performed on believers. So, for example, we've gone over Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip talks to this guy. He explains a portion of Isaiah to the guy. The guy recognizes Jesus is the Savior of the world, and he believes, and then he's baptized. Believes, baptized. Credo Baptist, you know, type, type thing. Um, or with the, uh, the Acts 19, where Paul goes to Ephesus and says, have you received the Spirit? We, didn't even, we don't know what you're talking about. Were you baptized? Yeah, in John's baptism, we repented. We believe in Jesus, but we don't really know what you're getting on about. Well, they believe, and then they receive baptism. Cornelius, that we talked about with Peter a minute ago. Peter goes and preaches to him. Cornelius accepts the gospel. And then what happens to Cornelius? He's baptized. So, Credo Baptist like pointing to those stories and showing that there is a progression that happens. A person believes, then they're baptized. That's the progression that they would say they see in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. First comes discipleship. Second comes baptizing them. Right? Now, whenever we get into the Pado baptist position on Friday, I'm going to show that there's maybe a little bit more to those arguments that uh, Pado baptist would want to point out. But for now, this is kind of the type of logic that a credo baptist is going to try to follow out. The only obvious, clear examples of a person being baptized in the New Testament, they're all believers already. And look at Jesus's words, make disciples, then baptize them. All right. Um, another really big argument for um, the credo baptist position, um, this one's a little bit more complex, but it is one of their go-tos. Um, this is one of the arguments that they really like pointing to more than, more than others. Um, if I use the term new covenant, you guys have heard that before, right? Yeah. Um, throughout the scripture, God makes promises to his people. He made promises to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. You'll be um, uh, the father of many nations. Uh, those who bless you, I'll bless. Those who curse you, I'll curse. He made an old covenant, which we call sometimes it's Mosaic covenant. Sometimes we call it the Sinai covenant. Um, the old covenant, though, uh, which was the law, right? Do these things and you will live. Don't do them. You will, you will die. The, the, the law that was given through Moses on Sinai. And in the Old Testament, there was a promise that one day a new covenant would be made, which would promise forgiveness of sins and um, that the Lord would pour out his spirit on his people and write their, the law in their hearts and cause them to walk in his statutes and obey his rules. Um, and that new covenant was eventually brought to us by whom? Who brings the new covenant? Jesus does. Right? The Last Supper, he pours out the wine and says, this is the new covenant I make with you in my, in my blood. So um, the church... All right, think about it this way. The old covenant, the one that was given by Moses at Sinai, what group of people were in the old covenant in the Old Testament? The Israelites. They were the community of that covenant. Now we have a new covenant that Jesus has brought. What is the, what is the name of the community that's in that new covenant with Jesus? Christians, which make up the, the church. So the church is this community of new covenant people, all right? 
if you, if you want to find people who are in the Old Covenant, you have to look at the Old Testament at Israel. If you want to find people in the New Covenant, you look at the church at believers. And in Jeremiah 31:34, which is a passage that talks about the New Covenant that God would one day make, this is one of the promises that was made. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor uh, and each teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. This is a really big text for the Credo-Baptist position. Credo-Baptists point at this, and they say, In the New Covenant, how many people really do know the Lord? No longer shall you have to teach your neighbor and brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall what? All know me. All right, in the Old Covenant, in Old Testament Israel, the Old Covenant community, did everyone in Old, Old Testament Israel know the Lord? Did all of them really know him? No, right? In Old Testament Israel, not all of them really knew him. They were part of the covenant community. They had the law, they had the prophets, they had all of that stuff, but there were people in Old Testament Israel and their hearts were very, very far away from God. Is that true? Yeah. And Jeremiah says that whenever the new covenant comes, everyone who is a member of the new covenant will know the Lord. To the point where you won't have to, you know, go to your neighbor and your brother saying, know the Lord, know the Lord. All of them will know me. Credo Baptists point at that, and they say the promise of the New Covenant is that everyone who is a member of the New Covenant will know the Lord. The church is the community of New Covenant people. So what we want to do, we're Credo Baptists, what we want to do is we want to make the church look as much like this as possible. All right? We, we used this term yesterday that you kind of have... Um, the visible physical church, that's the, that's the people that you see, right? Whenever you go to church on Sunday, you have the invisible church, all the people in right relationship with God. And what Credo Baptists want to do is they want to make those look as much alike as possible, all right? The new covenant promises the only people who are going to be in it, members of it, are people who know the Lord. So the only people we want to be part of our church are people who know the Lord. And so how do you become a part of the church? What do you go through to become part of the church? What's the, what's the thing that you go through to become part of the church? Baptism. baptism. So we only want to give baptism to people who what? Know the Lord and believe. We don't want to give it to anybody else. Only to those who have already made a credible profession of faith and know the Lord and believe. Because inside of our church, we want there to be professing believers who all know the Lord on the basis of this text. Okay, Does that make sense? We're kind of going to a lot of ideas there, but, but you kind of understand that argument. So this is a huge, huge, huge text for the credo-baptist position. This is why they're going to limit giving baptism only to those who believe. Um, so um, we only have a couple minutes left, so I think I'm going to pause it right there, and then uh, we'll get into the paedo-baptist position on Friday and then we'll kind of try to compare them a little bit. So I'll give you kind of a rundown of what do Pado baptists think, 
what are their arguments, and then we'll try to kind of compare them. Um, and then uh, <coughs> we'll probably have to keep talking about baptism a little bit next week, too. We won't make it through everything. Before we wrap up, any questions on today or on yesterday? Okay.